You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. You and I are daily subject to a multitude of voices, aren't we? We've made the observation before. I'm sure in the future we'll make the observation again. But it seems like perhaps now more than ever, we are subject to more and more and more and more voices, opinions, pontificators who are vying for our attention and our devotion. Sometimes it's television, sometimes it's social media, other times it's Hollywood, other times it's politicians, sometimes it's marketers. However you name it, we recognize that there are many, many voices. And so much of what we hear from those voices is untrue. And that requires us to be discerning, doesn't it? It requires us to be vigilant day in and day out to evaluate, to consider, to weigh all of the voices in light of the truth that we discover in Jesus and in the Scriptures. It is very easy to become distracted. In fact, sometimes we welcome distraction because things get kind of crazy and we're busy and it's been a long day and I don't really want to put a lot of energy into anything else because I'm tired and maybe I can just zone out on my phone for a little while or turn on a ball game for a little while and just... Not to say that rest and decompression is not a crucial part of life, but to say that we must be cautious about letting down our guard and becoming unvigilant. At one level, the opportunity for distraction is unprecedented because media and technology is so everywhere, isn't it? But at another level... The presence of distraction is nothing new. John writes in the first century to a church for which he is concerned because he's worried they might get distracted. There's other voices out there. There are other prophets, he says. There are false messiahs. And they have a voice. And they are calling upon the folks in John's community to depart and come with them. 
And so John's recipients, the church to which he's writing, is in danger of listening to other voices and getting distracted from what Jesus is calling them to do. And John wants them to consider this deep abiding reality that we are going to have to embrace. And it's simply that unwavering disciples must be uncompromising discerners. Like Disciples don't get to sit out of the process of discerning truth from falsity. Disciples don't get to take a back seat when it comes to discerning who Jesus is, what He reveals about God, what He desires for His followers to do, and who He desires us to be. Unwavering disciples must be discerning disciples and discerners of Jesus' truth and falsity. We're going to follow Jesus for the long term, and we've got to be vigilant right now at discerning deeply who He is and what He wants. Now, it helps to remember the context to which John writes, in which John writes. And we're reminded of that because he uses this language of antichrist. It's not the first time in 1 John that he mentions mentions antichrist kinds of people. Way back in chapter 2, he warns the church about not just one figure he calls the antichrist, but maybe you remember the many people who he calls antichrists, plural. And we recognize when we spend some time in that passage that there's a lot of There's a lot of different opinions about what this language means, but we also learn that if we kind of back up and and take the language in its first century Jewish context, that it kind of sheds some light on on things and kind of opens up the picture a little bit. Uh, We reminded ourselves that the word Antichrist does not appear in which book of the Bible? Yep, so a lot of us associate Antichrist with Revelation, but that word doesn't appear in that book at all. Not even close. Not once. It only appears in 1 John and 2 John, and sometimes it's plural, and that was enough for us to kind of say, all right, let's take all the kind of random things we've heard and put that on the shelf and try to figure out what the Scriptures are actually saying here. And so... It's helpful, we reminded ourselves, that the word Christ is really just a Greek translation of the Hebrew word, anybody remember? Messiah. And so, an antichrist in the first century is not this eschatological end times bad guy, it's somebody who thinks they're a substitute For Jesus, there's someone who thinks they're the Messiah. And we discovered that if we went back and actually read some historians who were like doing their job in the first century, people like this guy named Josephus, who recorded so much of the history of the Hebrew people up through the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, 
that there were lots of people running around who thought they were the Messiah. In fact, right before Jerusalem fell, there were three people, each with their own followings, that thought their leader was the guy, the Messiah. And by that, they didn't think he was the second person of the Trinity. They didn't think he was God incarnate. They thought he was the political revolutionary who would overthrow the Roman Empire and vindicate God's people and set them free and rule over the nations from Jerusalem. And so it looks like that John is worried about people who have left his congregation to follow someone who is claiming, or at least is sort of acting like the king of the Jews, a Messiah. Follow me. We'll beat the Romans. Yeah, they've surrounded the city, but we, the Lord is with us, and we'll fight the great battle, and we'll run them out, and we'll defeat them, and then when we've won, I'll be the king. This person will be the king. In the first century, that's what Messiah meant. And so John again is saying, don't forget about these guys. The danger hasn't gone away. We've got false prophets. We've got false messiahs. And, and yes, we know that Jesus has... We can't see Him right now. He's not immediately visible to us. And I know that Simon and these other guys you've heard about in other parts of the city... They, like they're visibly present and it's very distracting and it's very tempting. Let's go see what they're about. Maybe that Jesus, the Romans are outside. Jesus is not visibly present. There's a really charismatic fellow over there. Maybe we should go see what that guy's about. And John says, that's the spirit of false messiahship. Antichrist. They are false prophets who will mislead you, and you must be discerning. John is writing to preserve the community, isn't he? He's writing because he wants unwavering disciples of Jesus. He doesn't want them to falter. He doesn't want them to lose their trust in Jesus. He doesn't want them to waver or doubt or in the midst of their doubt to, to strengthen them and in the midst of their, their concern to, to up, uphold them and to say, you know, we're in a position where maybe this, this time of questioning where you're kind of not sure and maybe you're having a crisis of faith doesn't have to be the end of the line. Maybe the Lord wants to work and strengthen you in this moment, and it's really just going to be a long-term step on your journey, one step on your long-term journey of following Jesus. Right? In this moment, let's just sort of be honest about the competitors. Let's be honest about the real claims. Let's just name that, and let's be discerning. We don't want to waver. We want to focus on Jesus, even in the midst of the competition and the potential distractions for John faithfulness unwavering faithfulness requires discerning the truth in a sea of competitors a sea of false voices and notice for John discernment is entirely focused on Jesus 
Right? So for John, his answer is, I know there's a lot of options. I know there are a lot of voices. I know there are a lot of people who want to be the hero. I know there are a lot of folks who are telling you the world is a mess. You can hope in me. You know anybody like that? Have you heard anyone like that? Next year's an election cycle. You will then. We will be confronted again and again and again with the kind of person who says, everything is crumbling. I can save it. Don't believe it. Not true. There's only one person, John says, who can rescue you. There's only one person who has died for the life of the world. There's only one person who reveals God. There's only one person who's the Messiah. There's only one person who loves you more than you can imagine to an infinite capacity. And His name is Jesus. And everything depends on what you do with Him. Everything. Listen to the text again. Beloved, don't believe every spirit, right? Lots of voices competing for your attention. Don't believe every spirit, but test them. Test them to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, right? So here's your litmus test. Somebody wants you to listen to their voice and trust them. Here's the test. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Has Jesus Christ come? Is Jesus Christ Lord? Does Jesus reveal God? Is Jesus the Savior of the world? If the answer is yes, you can trust them. If not, be discerning. Now, it can be somewhat more nuanced. We'll get into that in just a minute. But John wants his readers to know, to understand, to embrace that the ultimate litmus test for truth and lies is Jesus. Anyone who promotes themselves as the only way, anyone who sets themselves forward up as the only solution, anyone who presents himself as the hope for the people of God should be a red flag. For John, Jesus has come to do all of that. And anyone who denies or does not confess that Jesus is from God, John says, we're getting into that antichrist kind of sphere. Jesus has come from God to be our Messiah. The other options are false prophets, false messiahs. Unwavering disciples must be deeply discerning, faithfully discerning, consistently discerning, uncompromised in their discerning of the truth about Jesus. So, 
If Jesus is the litmus test for what's true and what's false, then that's he's the one where we we focus our attention. So we want to distinguish between the voice of Jesus and all the other voices. Right? And if we are primarily, first, singularly prioritized on the voice of Jesus, and we sort of let the other ones, you know, we'll hear you out, but we're going to judge everything we hear based on what the Lord Jesus says and who He is and what He reveals about God. It creates some structure for us and some space for us to grow in the way we relate to Jesus and the way we grow as followers of Jesus. So the question then becomes, like, what happens when you start with Jesus, right? So take all, like, and like, take just a second and think about all the voices you hear during the week, right? Uh, voices of your family members, uh, voices of pundits, maybe voices of a, a physician, a coworker, a colleague, about like a boss, uh, people who work under your authority, right? There's lots of voices. You hear my voice <laughs> every week. How, like, what happens when we sort of take all the voices, set them here, and elevate the voice of Jesus? What do we discover? What do we learn? When we identify the distractions and set them to sign and focus our attention on Jesus, what happens when you start with Jesus? John would have us understand, and you see this all through 1 John, that when you start with Jesus, you learn something new about God. And one of the things you learn about God that maybe wasn't clear before because God reveals Himself progressively, right? Genesis 1 tells us a lot about God, but it doesn't tell us everything about God, right? We keep reading into Exodus, and we learn more about God, but we don't learn everything about God. And we keep reading into the historical narratives of the Old Testament, and the prophets, and we keep learning more about God, but we still haven't learned everything about God. And then we get to the Gospels, and we meet Jesus, and we go, wow, <laughs> we've learned so much more about God through Him. So what does Jesus reveal about who God is? Because God is making more of Himself known, and He does it through Jesus. And the thing that we discover about God through Jesus is that God is a trinity. Like, listen to the way John reads here. And this verse is just an example of the way that he continually talks about God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. By this you know the Spirit of God. By this you know the Spirit of God. That's Trinitarian language. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So now we've got the Spirit, we've got Jesus, Trinitarian language. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And before He's called God the Father. And so you've got this God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. You've got all of this language. You've got a Trinitarian shape to the entire document of 1 John. Earlier in John, in 1 John, who is a liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. 
So again, and, and, and he goes on, it's worth hearing again. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Everyone who confesses the Son has the Father also. So for John, there is this deep Trinitarian shape to the entire letter. It just keeps coming up again and again. We'll see it in the rest of verse 4. We'll see it in or the rest of chapter 4. We'll see it in, the rest, in chapter 5. We've already seen it in the early parts. For John, Jesus shows up and it radically reorganizes the way we think about God. Why? Because when Jesus shows up, He looks like a normal guy. He eats breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He prays. He runs around. Like imagine growing up with Him. <laughs> Brothers and sisters and like, are you, how you feeling being compared to Jesus all the time at the dinner table and things like that. And He's a normal guy and and, and, and he's growing, and he's learning to read. Like, can you think about Jesus learning to read? Parents, maybe you're like teaching your kids the alphabet. Have you ever thought about what it was like for Mary to teach Jesus the alphabet? Or what it was like when he formed his first words? Or went from crawling to walking? Like, can you imagine Jesus learning to walk? But that's the Jesus that we're presented with. Like nobody's going, well, obviously he's God. He didn't have to learn to walk when he was two years old or something. Right? He's a normal, fully human being. And that's, you know, the scriptures tell us that he grew in wisdom and he grew in stature and he matured as a human being. But then we get into adulthood and he starts doing some very surprising things. He starts going around telling people things like your sins are forgiven. And we would have been fine if he was just doing the miracles because we had some Old Testament prophets who could do signs and wonders from time to time. And like that's not altogether surprising. But then he goes and says something like your sins are forgiven in Mark chapter 2. And everybody knows there's only one being in the cosmos who's allowed to say that and his name is God. So they asked Jesus, like, who do you think you are? Running around saying things only God is supposed to say. And Jesus just sort of, I think Jesus was good with tension. <laughs> you know, he doesn't just give them a lecture on Trinitarian theology at that moment. One of my favorite preachers says, it doesn't say it in the text, but I think he probably just kind of winked at him a little bit. <laughs> Figure it out, folks. Later in the Gospels, he does things only God can do. The Old Testament talks about how God treads on the seas and hymns in the waters. And so after Jesus walks on water and the disciples are going, who is this guy? It's not because they thought it was a nifty trick. It's because he's doing something only their God is supposed to be able to do. Jesus is embodying and declaring the character and life of the Creator. And so the early church said, 
Like, and God seemed cool with it because he raised him from the dead. <laughs> like, if God didn't like Jesus going around doing things only God could do, he could have just left him in the grave, and that would have been the end of that, right? But God says to the human court, kangaroo court, I'm going to overturn your verdict. You have given Jesus the verdict of capital punishment and the divine court finds in his favor and overturns the verdict of the human court and vindicates everything Jesus ever said and everything he ever did. Which means the creator is cool with Jesus doing things and saying things only God's supposed to be able to do. And so the early church comes along and says, like, like we've got to rethink our doctrine of God as a consequence of the presence of Jesus. And we need some language. We need some help. We need to kind of talk through these kinds of things and, and invite God to give us wisdom. Because we got Jesus, and He's clearly a human being. He died. Like, that's the most human thing you can do, right? God doesn't, the immortal God doesn't have to worry about dying, but Jesus, like we saw him dead. But he went around doing things and saying things only God could do, and God raised him from the dead, and, and we hear him talking about this deeply intimate relationship with the, that he has with the God of Israel, and we see him like embodying the character of the God of Israel, and we see him embodying the life of the God of Israel, and he is unique, and he is he's human like us, but he's unique. How do we talk about that? And over, ye over time, as the church struggled with that tension, how do we talk about this guy who, who like, does what God can do and is fully human? He eats breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and dies. How do we talk about that? And eventually the church said, well, we can talk about Jesus being fully God and fully human. And that's not a contradiction. That's how God's revealed himself. And Jesus told us about the Holy Spirit. And we've experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit isn't just like this amorphous, like... depersonalized force, the Holy Spirit acts and is an agent and is a personal experience. Like a person, we've had a personal experience of the Holy Spirit. And so, like God is one. Like we believe that. There's one God, no compromise, no question. And yet God is also Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the only reason the church ever came to that conclusion is because Jesus showed up. So what happens when we start with Jesus? What happens if Jesus is the litmus test for truth? You get the Trinity. And you need to know, friends, like the Trinity defines us. There is not another religion in the world that affirms the existence of the God who is triune. There are other monotheistic religions. They think we're crazy. <laughs> or heretics or something. Like when people say to you, who is your God? What's the answer? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Who is your God? The Holy Trinity. How do you know? Because Jesus. Who are we? We are the people who belong to the triune God, who have been reconciled to the Father through the death and resurrection of His Son and are continually being renewed by the indwelling presence of His Holy Spirit. You start with Jesus, you find the Trinity. And you find your identity. This is who we are. And if Jesus is the God-man, if He's the embodiment of God, if He's ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, then he is Lord, isn't he? He calls the shots. Of all the voices out there, his voice is preeminent. His voice is the priority. Every other voice must take a secondary role to his voice. He calls the shots. He is Lord of all things. When we are faced with distractions, unwavering disciples are uncompromising discerners. We discern the voice of Jesus. We give ourselves to Jesus. Jesus gives His Spirit and brings us to His Father. Now you may realize that this creates a lot of room for distortion and denials, and this is really important. You may have noticed John said there's a lot of false prophets in the world. Did you notice where he said they came from? (laughs) Or where he implied they came from? They've gone out into the world. If they've gone out into the world, where do they start out? In here. (laughs) So it looks like the source of these false teachers, whether it's chapter 2 or chapter 4, right? he says many have gone out from us following false messiahs. They're false teachers. So like... The church has got to be vigilant to read the Scriptures well, to receive what we have been given, and be absolutely crystal clear on who our God is so that we don't get distracted and led astray. And so there are a lot of room for, there's a lot of room for distortions and denials. And they come from within the ranks of the church at times. And that's even more kind of dangerous because... We can think we're following Jesus when we're really not. The distortion Jesus. We want to be really careful not to kind of remake Jesus in our own image. We want to be conformed to His. So what are some of these examples? Like, What are the kind of things we can deny? Well, the first one that shows up on the pages of 1 John is the denial that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. And a lot of, like, very few Christians would actually say that, but a lot of us live that way, don't we? Like, we say Jesus is Lord on Sunday, but we don't really live like Jesus is Lord on Monday or the rest of the week. And so we need to consider what would it look like to be continually discerning the voice of Jesus and offering ourselves to Him consistently every day, not just, you know, on the Lord's Day. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah, the King, the One to whom all our unwavering allegiance is owed. And if there are voices who call on us to share the allegiance that belongs to to Jesus with some other figure, 
then we should be able to discern what? That's false. Jesus is true. Another potential denial is the denial that Jesus is fully God. This has been around for a long time, at least 1,700 years. Still crops up in different places. So in the 4th century, there are a group of folks who are saying, you know, like we really want to protect the one, like God is one, and this that means we've got to sort out how Jesus relates to God, and maybe we shouldn't say Jesus is fully God. Maybe we should just say something like he was the first of God's created beings and is really extra special more than us, and maybe he's a lot like God, but not fully God, and the church says, hang on. That doesn't jive with what we find in the Bible. It does not jive with what Jesus says about himself. It does not, like if he's not fully God, how can he bring us to God? So the church said, no, we can't believe that. There are still groups who want to say the same sort of thing. Jesus is the first of God's creatures. You spend much time talking to somebody who's a part of the Jehovah's Witnesses. You've probably heard this sort of thing. More dangerously, because I'm not super worried about you guys being converted by the Jehovah's Witnesses, more dangerously is... a. Uh, the fact that there are folks in our own denomination who deny the full deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was talking with a pastor um, yesterday. I just met him, but we actually overlapped when, we, when I was in Mobile for a little while. And he was kind of, he's not Methodist. He was at another church in Mobile at the same time I was at a church in Mobile. And he was kind of asking some questions about Methodism and asking questions about how the different sorts of Methodists he'd met. And some were like really trustworthy, reliable, Jesus-loving people. And some were... Well, you know. <laughs> and he actually sat down. This, I have no idea who this person was, but 20 years ago, he sat down with a district superintendent. And he was like, you know, just help me understand because I'm trying to get a feel for these sorts of things. Like, like what's, what's going on? And he started asking the guy, like, do you believe Jesus is the only way? And like the DS, again, I don't know who it was, said, no. All the religions get you the same place, which seems to me to denigrate all the religions because <laughs> none of them actually think that. <laughs> You believe Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is fully God? No. I mean, we have bishops saying the same thing. It's not a secret. John says there are folks, false prophets, who start in your ranks and go out there and try to lead you astray. That warning, brothers and sisters, is always relevant. There are plenty of examples of American denominations who got, who went soft on Jesus. Plenty. And it was disastrous. Everything depends on the Lord Jesus Christ. And unwavering disciples are uncompromising when it comes to discerning the truth about Jesus. Another denial is that Jesus is fully human. This is one we actually stumble into a little more easily. It's very easy for us to say, well, you know, of course Jesus never sinned. He was God. And we read things like Gethsemane, and we read things where he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And we think, hey, you know, yeah, he's tempted, like quote marks tempted. But he's, of course he was fine. It was just not this, like, he's God. Of course he could do miracles. He's God. 
heard a story about a, a little uh, a little kid, a little girl one time who um, her mother wanted her to clean her room, and she's like, what would Jesus do? And she said, Jesus would just snap his fingers, the room would be clean, right? Because he's God. And we slide into that, and we forget that Jesus, right, had to learn to walk and speak, and that Jesus needed to be fed as a six-month-old. Very quickly in the church, people came along and said, you know, like, this whole Jesus is God thing is very troubling, and like, Surely human beings are kind of like impure and dirty and bad and we're physical and material and the material world is bad and it's all sinful and surely God can't get like mixed up in that and so maybe Jesus just appeared to be human. Kind of like put on his human mask for a little while and went walking around and we, none of us would say that, would we? But we're very quick to say, well, sure, it was easy for him. He was gone. And I wonder how much distance there is between the two. Not very much. When Jesus went to Gethsemane, he was in anguish. Like every human emotion of lament and sorrow and grief and anguish was like coming out in the form of blood droplets. Because he knows what it's like to be fully human. He knows what it's like to be one of you. He knows how bad it hurts sometimes, and he is not immune to that because he's God. He brings human experience into the Godhead because he loves you, because he wants to walk with you in the moments of your suffering, and he wants to bring you fully with all of your humanness into his glory. So don't believe any story that de-emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. A truly high Christology. Christology is our doctrine of Christ, what we believe about Jesus. A truly high, rigorous belief about Jesus affirms and amplifies his humanity just as much as his deity. He's both. Fully God, fully human. Not half and half, not more of one and less of the other. Now, you may be like, man, preacher, why are you hitting us with all this ivory tower theology today, like Trinity and Christology, and what are we supposed to do with that? And here's what I want to say, friends. John draws his congregation's attention to Jesus and requires them to be unwavering in their discernment because at the end of the day, what we believe about God as a trinity, what we believe about Jesus as a fully human and fully God person is not just about like a nifty intellectual exercise. It is about knowing God and participating. Hold on to that word. Participating in His life and His love. John says to them, little children, you are from God and you have conquered them, right? The false teachers. For the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And typically we kind of, like we grab that greater language and we're like, yeah, God gives us power and God gives us strength and that's all good and right and true. 
I want to focus on the in you language. Greater is he who is around the corner. Greater is he who is off in heaven. No. Greater is he who is, you know, over there in the, the other side of the room. No. Greater is he who is what? In you. Like John writes about the perfect love of the triune God again and again and again. Not because he wants us to go through these like intellectual exercises or become just erudite theologians because he wants us to participate in the life of God. So I ask you, like, do you want to participate in the life of God? Anybody? Means yes. Means no. Do you want to participate in the life of God? Do you think knowing the name of your God is important to that? Then who's your God? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who is Jesus? The God man. Like this, at the end of the day, is not about just a fancy way of talking about God. It's about knowing Him and persevering. And walking into a deeper and deeper and deeper experience of His perfect love than we can even begin to consider at this moment. His love for us is infinite in its capacity and boundless. And we can talk about that, but experiencing it is a different thing. And John says, I want you to discern who Jesus is and what He reveals about God not so that you can write a great paper for your final, but so that you can experience the perfect love that eternally characterizes the life of the Trinity. And if you don't even know that your God is the Trinity, how can you possibly experience the fullness of His triune love? And so John wants us to be critical thinkers. He wants us to be discerning people. He wants us to... like. Learn to think well about God and speak well about God. So that when someone says, like, what's your, what's your religion all about? One time I was on an airplane. All, like our whole family got on this airplane. And I sit down, we're kind of there, and Amy and the kids are over here, and I'm in a seat with this other guy next to me. And, you know, typical airplane talk. Hey, what do you do? Where are you from? That kind of stuff. And I was like, well, you know, I don't even remember where we were from at the time, but we were from somewhere, and um, told him I was a pastor, and he's like, oh yeah, a pastor, and I think he was Hindu, or I think he, his family was Hindu, and his mom wasn't really happy with him because he wasn't very devout, and he shared that with me, and he said, but you know, like she's really devout, and I'm not, because I think all religions are basically the same. Christianity and Hinduism and Islam. It's all just about being an ethical person. How you become an ethical, like, and, and like just like rules to be like a good person. 
And uh, I like, yeah, I mean, you guys know I like shock value, so I couldn't resist saying something like, oh, yeah, that's not what Christianity is about. What? Christianity is not about being a good person. Christianity insists that you're incapable of that, actually. <laughs> and the conversation was on. So we had a whole flight. I don't forget however long it was to talk about the differences. And so it's crucial. And this is where we begin to see how this is not just kind of an intellectual exercise. It's about knowing God, and it's also about our mission. It's very hard to help people discover the perfect love of the triune God if we don't know how to talk about the triune God. Very hard. That's one reason that we put a lot of emphasis on our adult education formation group. Because education isn't just education. Education is formation. Learning how to read the Bible and how to talk about God and how to pray and all of these things makes us into a certain kind of Christian. A capable Christian. A Christian capable of engaging in the mission with our full selves. That's why the entire children and youth ministry is being built around strategy that offers the basics of the Christian faith. Who is your God? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God to our littlest disciples. Because if you can articulate the doctrine of the Trinity when you're five, you should be fine when you're 35. I actually find that five-year-olds do a lot better than 35-year-olds sometimes, so you guys better get to work. Because the mystery is beautiful, I think, in the eyes of a child. And they're not overthinking it. Don't overthink the Trinity. Just experience the love that the triune God offers to you. Here's the challenge, friends. God has called us to receive his perfect love, experience to embody it in ways that honor him consistently so that those who have yet to experience his perfect love may do so. So let's be unwavering. Even when it's hard and we're kind of like, my brain doesn't want to go there, just eyes on Jesus. Wrestle with him. Deal with him. Wrestle with whatever it is he wants to do, whatever it is he's revealing, whatever it is he's making known about God. Don't waver. It's never too hard. Because greater is he who is in you. His own spirit has come to dwell in you, to enable you to... And if you could just figure out God tomorrow, would it really be that interesting? Like if we could just sort of like diagram God on a dry erase board, would it be compelling? If we could figure out the depths of the infinite God tomorrow or the next day, would anyone show up next week? Like this is a journey of lifelong, deep knowing of the one who made us, who loved us. 
And don't you think we owe that to the one whose blood was shed for us? You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.